0: This is Derek Bukema, pastor of Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, and I'm so glad that you've joined us today for Grounded and Growing in Christ here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Each weekday at this time, we open God's Word, exploring how it changes us and brings us closer to Him. Right now, we are in a message series called Something Beautiful for God, discussing what the Bible says about humanity, sexuality, marriage, and procreation. To hear all of the messages in this series, please visit GroundedAndGrowingRadio.com. And if you'd like to help provide financial support for this radio ministry, you can make a gift of any size at that same website, GroundedAndGrowingRadio.com. If you're not already a part of a local church family, then I would like to invite you to visit us at Orland Park CRC this Sunday as we gather to worship the Lord and study His Word together. To find our service times and location information, just visit GroundedAndGrowingRadio.com. And now, let's open God's Word to see what He has for us today. Well, today we're starting a new sermon series, a new sermon series called Something Beautiful for God, a Christian Vision of Sexuality. Over the course of the past few years, no issue has, uh, has brought up more questions than this one. It's the thing that I get the most, maybe, email questions about, the most text questions about, the most phone call questions about. We live in an unusual time in human history. Well, frankly, we live probably in a time right now that's more similar to the way that the culture was at the time that Jesus lived and had his ministry. We live in a time where we're kind of reverting to ancient pagan ways of behavior. So, the first sexual revolution took place with the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in the early church. There were common ways of behaving among the pagans, and Christians, just as Jews had been before them, Christians were utterly distinct from them in the ways that they acted and operated. They were so strange, they were so odd, and it was very unusual for the whole world until Christianity conquered the Roman Empire, until Christianity started spreading across the Western world and then across the the globe. It changed everything. It changed the way that people acted and operated in relation to their sexuality. It changed the way that we understood marriage. Christianity turned the pagan world on its head in regards to marriage and personhood. And the history of civilization since that period of time have had the impact of the Christian message on these things as a part of their understanding of humanity and and personhood and marriage. Now, in the Western world and in American culture, you probably have heard of another sexual revolution, and this is one that started taking place in the 60s and then the 70s and some of the 80s. And what it was kind of packaged as and sold as was something that was brand new, something that was liberating, something that was going to move us to a new and better place. But what it actually is, is in many ways a return to those ancient pagan practices that had been done away with when Christianity conquered the Roman Empire. And so if you've been born in the late 50s or later, you've had your soul shaped by a culture that's reverting to paganism more and more all the time. And so because of that, you are likely confused as the pace of change accelerates and things become, I don't know, more and more unraveled. there's another problem and that is that the understanding of personhood and humanity and sexuality and maleness and femaleness and marriage and procreation that existed in the 1950s and, and before at least in American culture was not just a perfectly biblical vision of that sort of thing and so if you were born before the 1950s You also are likely confused by the pace of change as it relates to all of these things, but all of us need to understand that the goal as a church should not be to return to a specific decade in American history or Western history. It's for us to figure out what is the Bible teaching about these sorts of things? How do we live into them? How do we believe them? How do we follow them? How do we see the goodness and the beauty of all these sorts of things? How do we praise God for it? How do we use ourselves, body and soul, to praise the the Lord. And so we come to our series today. Now, in my experience, personhood and marriage and sexuality have been uh, much neglected as disciple, you know, things in the church. As I worked through what I would preach on this series, I realized that I don't recall ever hearing a sermon in church about most of the topics that I'm going to be addressing throughout this series, As we look ahead throughout the rest of 2020, I can say I don't recall ever hearing sermons about the following things, which we're going to be talking about in the coming weeks, on being made male and female, on being a body, on the nature of covenant, on sex, on the goodness of children. The Reformed confessions, in uh, large part, don't have a lot to say about these sorts of things. The Heidelberg Catechism talks about it in the treatment of the uh, of the seventh commandment, but it is extremely brief. And so, we just as Christian Reformed folks, as Protestants, we just don't have a deep understanding about these sorts of things. We haven't thought deeply about them. We haven't been taught deeply about them. Now. As you hear me say that I haven't heard a sermon on most of these sorts of things, you might be thinking a whole host of different things. Maybe that's not been your experience, and that's fine. Maybe you say, well, you've had great ministers throughout your life that were much wiser than you. Maybe there was a reason they didn't talk about this stuff, and maybe you are a fool to try to bring this up, and that may be. But let me lay out for you why I think it is important for us to talk about these things. I have three reasons for us why I think this is going to be an important series for us to work our way through. And let me lay out in our time together today why I believe that this is very important and necessary and good. So, here's the, uh, here's the first reason that I believe we need to have this particular series on human sexuality. Reason number one is that faithful ministers are called to preach the whole counsel of God. Faithful ministers are called to preach the whole counsel of God. One of the sections of Scripture that should direct us as a church in all of this is found in the book of Acts in acts paul is being recorded as saying goodbye to the ephesian elders and let me read to you a brief section from that part of scripture i'm going to start in verse 26 he's uh we're told this in book of acts therefore paul's talking here as he's saying goodbye to the ephesian elders i testify to you this day that i am innocent of the blood of all for i did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of god pay careful attention to yourselves And to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears." Paul says in this section of scripture that he is innocent of their blood because he has preached the whole counsel of God. He's talked about the whole thing from the very beginning to the very end. He hasn't skipped over any topics. He's gone right into what it is that the scriptures say about all of those. And he says the reason that he's doing that is because after he leaves, there's going to come this time where where wolves come into the flock and seek to tear up the flock by twisting what it is that scripture says. This is the sort of thing that's going on in churches today, on a whole host of different things, but this is one of them. The church is being divided in many places because of a lack of understanding about sexuality, and because there are wolves that are making their way into churches and twisting the words of God. And so what we need to do is to take a look at the whole counsel of God and understand what the Bible says about a wide range of different topics, all of them from very beginning to very end, and marriage is one of those. And that takes us to the second reason for this series in particular. Marriage is a whole council of God matter. And this is going to take up most of the sermon today. But let me point out to all of us how marriage is a whole council of God sort of matter. We can see it in several major ways. One of them is that God created marriage. So let me read to us from Genesis chapter 2 verses 15 to 25. This is what Genesis two fifteen to 25 says. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. And the Lord said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground of all the wild animals, all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs Marriage is not a human invention. It was created by God with a particular design. And God gave humanity marriage before the fall, before any sin was in the world. And one of the things that you can know is that when God designed things a certain way, that is the way that they are supposed to be. When God makes something before sin is in the world, we can recognize this is something that is supposed to be for every time, every place, every culture. This is not something that is given to one specific people in one specific culture. This is not something that's given as a concession to sin. This is not something that's given to deal with sin. As God creates the world and then creates marriage, he gives it to humanity and says, this is what marriage is supposed to be, how it is that I've designed it. It's supposed to involve a man. It's supposed to involve a woman. It's supposed to be a lifelong covenant. And we can see just in this brief account of the creation of marriage, we can see that marriage touches on so many different things. On maleness, on femaleness, on covenant, on difference, on unity, on nakedness, on rejoicing. This is the first poem in scripture, after all. And I mean, Adam already seems like, I don't know. Somebody trying poetry for the first time, you know? Have you ever tried to write a poem? It's probably kind of like this. Uh, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and her name is woman. It doesn't seem to me to be a very good poem, but it's poetry. And you know what poetry does? It's, it's this thing that's really transcendent. And so what he's doing is he's seeing the, the woman that was made for him to be his wife, and he is rejoicing. And he is waxing poetic about how wonderful it is that this one who was created distinct and different from him, that they nonetheless are created for each other, that there's a part of humanity that women have that men don't have. There's a part of humanity that men have that women don't have. And in their coming together, there is something unique and beautiful. And the Bible explains that that's the case, right? This is why a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they become one flesh. Because this is how God created it to be. This is how God designed it to be. Marriage and maleness and femaleness and covenant and sexuality are all inventions of God. They are all good. And we should learn to rejoice in these things and we should cultivate love for these things. And now more from Pastor Derek in our series called Something Beautiful for God Discussing humanity, sexuality, marriage, and procreation And having created marriage The fact that God gave to us marriage Then God uses marriage as a pretty dominant metaphor For his relationship with his people Throughout the Old Testament God uses marriage to describe his relationship with the people of Israel Let me give to you just a few examples There are more than this God references marriage between uh, Himself and His people Israel in a number of different Bible verses in Ezekiel sixteen eighteen through twenty one in Jeremiah three six through eight in Exodus twenty four seven to eight in that one it's speaking specifically about covenant. So let me read to you Exodus twenty four seven to eight. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, "All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient." And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people, and said, "Behold." the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Marriage is a covenant, and that covenantal relationship between God and Israel is described as a marriage very frequently. Jeremiah 2 verse 2 talks about it. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 9 talks about it. Jeremiah 3, 1 talks about it. Jeremiah 3, 14 talks about it. Let me read to you Jeremiah 3, 14. Return faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you, one from a town and two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. You see God again and again and again as he's talking to the Old Testament people of God, the, the people of Israel, He is saying, "I am married to you, we are in a covenant, I am your husband, you are my people, you're my bride." He says it in Ezekiel 16:27 through 30. He says it in Hosea one verse two. He says it in Hosea two two through seven. When God determines that he is going to describe his relationship with his people, he uses the example of marriage. Now, this should be a really arresting thing for us because it's a very intimate metaphor, and God uses it to describe the way that he is devoted to his people. One of the things that is beautiful about God is he is always faithful to the covenants that he has made, and the fact that he declares over and over and over again to his people that he has made a covenant marriage relationship with his people should remind us that regardless of how faithless we are, he will always be faithful to us. He never breaks covenant. He never does. And so the fact that he uses marriage to describe his relationship with his people should be extremely comforting to you. And also, if you ever wonder if God loves you, just recognize the way that he describes his relationship with his people is one of marriage. There's no relationship in the world more loving. And God speaks of his people in that sort of way. It's important to recognize this if you are a married person or if you are a single person, because God uses this metaphor for his people, and that means that all of us can experience the sort of covenantal, spousal love of God when we are joined to him in Christ Jesus. It means that marriage, because God uses it as a metaphor for for how he loves his people, it's something that is for you if you are married or if you are single. That's beautiful. And it means that understanding it is important for people who are married and important for people who are single. He loves us as his church with a faithful love that will not be broken and with a spousal love that is deep and intimate. God then uses marriage to describe the gospel. And here I want to direct your attention to Ephesians chapter 5. Let me read this section of scripture. Ephesians 5:22 to 33. Wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Do you see what he does here in this challenging and beautiful instruction? He points back to what we first read, to Genesis chapter 2, and he said, this is the way that I have designed marriage. This is the way that I have intended it to be from the very beginning. I've intended for for wives to to live in one way in the course of this covenantal relationship and husbands to live in another way in the course of this covenantal relationship and i have intended it for a purpose he says in ephesians chapter 5 that that this is something that speaks to the relationship of christ jesus and the church that means that marriage itself can be a picture of the gospel. That when husbands and wives live together in the way that's described in Ephesians chapter 5, we actually have the opportunity to show the world that Christ Jesus loves the church. That Christ Jesus, through intelligent, willing submission to the Father, came to earth to, to live for us and die for us and, be rise, and rise again from the dead for us. Marriage is so important in the scope of Scripture that God creates it at the very beginning of the Bible. He uses it to describe his relationship with his people all throughout the Old Testament. He uses it to describe his relationship with the church. He uses it as an illustration of the gospel itself. And not only does he do all that, God uses marriage to describe the eternal celebration that will be ours. Let me read to you from Revelation chapter one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And let me just read to you briefly. It's not going to be on the screen, but from Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. It ends with another marriage. It ends with the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven as a bride that is prepared for her husband. It ends with a marriage feast of the Lamb. And one of the things that is helpful for us to realize is that in popular conception of heaven, I don't know what sort of thing comes to mind for you if if you think of heaven, but one of the things that can sometimes pop in my mind are those, like, Pictures of cherubs with the little, you know, like bow and arrow with a heart, you know, tip of the arrow or whatever, as if, as if that's heaven, or like people that are sitting on clouds, just kind of distance from each other. The way that the way that the Bible ends is with a a wedding feast, with a marriage feast, and so if you want to think about the way that heaven will be. Think about a wedding reception. I mean, this is, this is one of the pictures that we are given for us to understand what eternity with the Lord God is going to be like, like a wedding reception. Now, let me tell you, one of the things, maybe the thing I'm most afraid of in the world is dancing. It's something I'm very bad at and something that, um, something that I, I am terrified to do. Except at my own wedding, for some reason, all of my inhibitions were gone at my own wedding because I was excited just to celebrate the fact that I was being joined in marriage to Aubrey. At one point, Aubrey told me that one of my longtime friends and my former roommates said, what's gotten into Derek? And she's like, I don't know. He just is dancing the whole night away. And she said at that moment... I, I got up on like a chair or a table and I started dancing and some I mean some of you were there and people, started being like go Derek it's it was weird <laughs> and so I jumped down off the chair and I went to her she goes who are you and I was like I'm married Derek married Derek dances <laughs> Aubrey. Now I use that as an illustration because like if if we think that like heaven is going to be this like boring eternity of like I don't know contemplation in the clouds. It's going to be much more like an uninhibited, dance-filled celebration of the fact that God's purposes have been accomplished. It's really beautiful. And so in the incredible wisdom of the Lord God, the Bible is structured in a very interesting way. At the very opening of the Bible, we see the creation of a marriage. All throughout the scriptures, we see that God refers to his relationship with his people as a marriage. As we come to the very end of the scriptures, we see a wedding. scriptures open on a wedding. They conclude with a wedding. And all of this speaks to us that we should know something about what it means when we talk about marriage, when we talk about the way that God has made us.